And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is January 26th, 26th day of the year. 339 days remain to the end of the year. You know, a lot of things happen on this date in history. 661, the Rashidun... Caliphate is effectively ended with the assassination of Ali, the last caliph. 1531 was a 7.1 earthquake in Lisbon, killed about 30,000 people. 1564, the Council of Trent formally established a distinction between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, 1699, for the first time in its history, the Ottoman Empire permanently ceded territory to the Christian powers. 1700, a 9.2 Cascadia earthquake takes place off the west coast of North America, as evidenced by Japanese records of all things. 1788, the British First Fleet, led by Arthur Phillips, sails into Port Jackson, which is Sydney Harbor, to establish Sydney, the first permanent European settlement in Australia. It's called Australia Day. 1808, the Rum Rebellion. Is the only successful, although very short-lived, armed takeover of the government in New South Wales. Gotta have that rum, don't you know? 1837, Michigan is admitted as the 26th U.S. state. 1841, James Bremer takes formal possession of Hong Kong Island, what's now Possession Point, that established British Hong Kong. 1855, Point of No Point uh, Treaty. Signed in Washington Territory. 1856, the first battle of Seattle. Marines from the USS Decatur drive, drive off American Indian attackers after an all-day battle with settlers. 1861, American Civil War. The state of Louisiana succeeds on this date from the Union. 1863, General Ambrose Burnside relieved the command of the Army of the Potomac after the disastrous Fredericksburg Campaign. Joseph Hooker took his place. Lincoln once said Hooker was a phenomenal uh, trainer. Couldn't lead for crap. 1863, Governor of Massachusetts, John Albion Andrew, gets permission from the Secretary of War to raise a militia organization for men of African descent. 1870, on this date, Virginia is readmitted to the Union. 1885, troops loyal to the Mahdi conquer Khartoum, killing Governor General Charles George Gordon. Apparently the Mahdi had forbid him to be harmed, but uh, fanatics don't always listen, and he was murdered, and as a result, uh, their movement was crushed. 1826, the first demonstration of the television by John Baird. Uh, 1834, the Apollo Theater reopens in Harlem. New York City. 1834, German-Polish Declaration of Non-Aggression is signed, which didn't amount to much. Uh, 1839, Spanish Civil War, the Catalonia Offensive. Troops loyal to General Francisco Franco and aided by Italy take Barcelona. When uh, Franco died, one of his last acts was to appoint one of my cousins as king. 1842, U.S. forces, uh, forces arrive in Europe, landed in uh, Northern Ireland. That was in 1942. 1945, Audie Murphy uh, displayed valor and bravery in action, for which he later will get the Medal of Honor. The most decorated soldier in World War II. Always do your acts in front of Senior officers, that gets you medals. 1852, the Black Saturday in Egypt. Riders burn Cairo Central Business District, targeting British and upper-class Egyptian businesses. Uh, 1959, the 41-acre Chain Island is listed for sale by the California State Lands Commission. Minimum bid, $5,226. 1966, the three Beaumont children disappear from a beach in Glenelg, South Australia. 
resulting in one of the country's largest ever police investigations. I don't know that um, they were seven, nine, and four years old, respectively. Uh, case got extensive police and media attention. As of 2018, a one million dollar reward has been offered for information related to this cold case by the South Australian government. They uh, this happened uh, January 26, 1966. They're Jane Grant and Anna Beaumont. Some cases just can't be solved. 1972. JAT Flight 367 is destroyed by a terrorist bomb. Kills 27 of the 28 people on board that DC-9. Flight attendant Vesna Volovic uh, survives with critical injuries. In 74, Turkish Airlines Flight 301 crashes during takeoff from Izmir Kumarovozoiza Airport. Killing 66 of the 73 on board. It was a Fokker F-28 fellowship. Uh, 1986, the Ugandan government of Tito Okello was overthrown by the Nationalist Resistant Army, led by Yari Museveni. 1991, Mohammed Saeed Bari is removed from power in Somalia. That ends centralized government, succeeded by uh, Ali Mahdi. 1998, the Lovinsky scandal. On American TV, President Bill Clinton, my third cousin, denies having had sexual relations with former White House intern Monica Lewinsky. He later admitted he lied, but he said whether or not he told a lie um, revolves around the definition of the word is. 2001, a 7.7 .7 earthquake shakes western India. Kills 13,805 to 20,023, and about 166,800 are injured. Uh, 2001, Diane Whipple, a lacrosse coach, is killed in a dog attack in San Francisco, uh, which clarified the meaning of implied malice murder. 2015, an air car crashes at Los Llanos Air Base in Albacete, Spain, kills 11, injures 21. This day in 2020, Sikorsky S-76B helicopter flying from John Wayne Airport to Camarillo Airport crashes in Calabasas, 30 miles west of Los Angeles, kills all nine people on board, including former five-time NBA champion Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna Bryant. And in 2021, protesters and farmers stormed the Red Fort near Delhi, clashing with police. One protester is killed, more than 80 police officers are injured. Now, as I say, this has been an interesting date in history. Now, I got an email wanting to know if I'd go back and talk about ghosts. So we're going to talk about some haunted ho uh, hospitals. This one is uh, is the Charles Camsell Hospital in Alberta, Canada, um, the town of Edmonton. Now, the original building was that eventually became the Charles Camsell Hospital was built in 1913 by Jesuits and used as a Jesuit college for boys till 1942. Beginning the Second World War, the American Army took over the property as part of the, its friendly invasion of Canada. A number of new buildings were built, and the resulting facility was used to house and support American Army personnel and engineers building the Alaska Highway. Now, when the highway was finished in 1944, the Canadian government took over the site and turned it into the Edmonton Military Hospital. It was used to treat injured soldiers coming back from war abroad, and several of the buildings constructed by the American Army had been connected to the main building by a series of tunnels and corridors. Now, the next use the government had for it was uh, 
They converted it from a Moonlight Hospital to a tuberculosis hospital to serve the Inuit and First Nations groups in Alberta, Yukon Territory, and part of the Northwest Territories. Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps and Indian Health Services ran the facility together for several months. And in June 1, 1946, the land and buildings were officially transferred from the Canadian Department of Defense to the Department of National Health and Welfare. A couple of months later, August 26, 1946, the Charles Kempson Hospital officially opened as an Indian sanatorium. Now, but buildings like people eventually wear out. And in 1964, the government began construction of a new hospital building on the property. And it opened as a functional hospital in July of 1967, and the old Jesuit College building was torn down. The new building is the one that stands on the property today. Now, during its time as an Indian hospital, the Charles Council was largely used to treat tuberculosis patients. Government assembled teams would... Uh, travel to remote indigenous communities to test people for tuberculosis and if anybody showed signs of having the disease they'd be transported back to the hospital for treatment and because tuberculosis doesn't discriminate in choosing its victims patients ranged in age from the very young to the very old and every age in between and those afflicted were taken away from their families and flown to a large hospital far from home and a large number of these patients never left the hospital alive. Sadly, many of those who died at the council never even had their bodies returned to their loved ones, leaving families with unanswered questions without closure. Rumors of bodies uh, buried on the grounds persist to this day, in part because the bodies of people who died weren't returned to the communities. So what happened to them? In fact, the current property owners hired an Alberta uh, historian to research the probability of it being a burial site. Now, we didn't find any evidence to support the idea, but that doesn't stop people from wondering and speculating. By the 1970s, there was no longer a need for a dedicated tuberculosis hospital in Alberta. So the council's function shifted to that of a general treatment hospital, and its function as such till 1992 when it closed its doors for good. Officially decommissioned in 1993. Now, the old hospital facility is currently owned by Edmonton developer Gene Dove, who's undertaken the long and expensive process of removing the asbestos from the building as a goal of converting it into apartments and condos. Now, don't, no doubt, the long time it's been empty is filled with stories about ghosts and spirits lingering about the property, along with the rumors of booby traps and barbed wire wrap railings meant to discourage vandals and squatters. But given its emotion-filled history, one has to imagine these details are only gasoline on the fire, so to speak. Now, with the reported hauntings at the hospital, Edmonton historian Daniel Metcalf Chanel says uh, some have said they've seen figures in the windows of are broken in and had weird things happen to them. A lot of people uh, that she talked to uh, think their ancestor spirits haven't found peace and are still wandering around. And for a lot of people, it was not a happy place. Now, intrigued by the rumors and stories surrounding the Charles Council Hospital, a couple of paranormal investigators decided to investigate it for themselves. And they suspected they'd find something because, uh, as one of them said in an interview, when you yank somebody out of their community and everything they know, there's anger, fear, frustration, desperation, all these emotions. And add to that the typical high emotion associated with a hospital stay, and it's a recipe for a whole lot of residual emotional energy. And maybe something more than that as well. Now, their investigation was not 100% sanctioned uh, for them to enter the hospital, but they made friends with the security guard, and he let them in. Outbuilding on the west end of the property connected to the main building to an underground tunnel, so... Rather than go through the locked front doors, they entered underground. I mean, what better way to start a paranormal investigation than to go through an underground tunnel? After its closure, the Charles Council Hospital was used as a set for the for a couple of movies. Because Dave Thomas's White Coats and Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed were filmed there, walking through the old hospital was a 
And I think it was a real experience. Some parts of it were empty and neglected, and others appeared to still be in use and fully functional. Now, one of the investigators' first stop was an old operating room. A few things in the room included a metal shelf and a light panel the doctors used to view x-rays. When we looked at the light panel through their infrared camera, it was glowing. No reason for a glow because it wasn't turned on, but it was still luminous. Now, they weren't sure if this was a, a paranormal effect or... It could be described as an electrical short, even just an old bub acting up. But the light was pulsing. Now, intrigued by the light panel, they turned on a, an audio recorder and put it on the metal shelf in the room. And they left it and actually left the floor. Literally, there was nobody on that floor. It was just the two of them in the building. They couldn't even hear mice. Later, when they played the recording back, they could hear all sorts of things on it. Movement, a loud bang, like someone slamming a hand down on the shelf. And this was especially interesting since when they came back to retrieve the recorder, it had been moved from its original position, almost as though somebody had hit the shelf and knocked it over. And they could also hear an authoritative voice uh, calling out the name Karen. Karen. They interpreted that as maybe a doctor calling uh, a nurse. It also captured the sound of metal tools being shifted on a tray and clanking against one another. But when they made the visit, there were no tools in the room at all. Now, given the evidence they just collected, the two were convinced there was something going on at the hospital. They had plans to return for an overnight vigil, but on this trip they didn't come alone, bringing a whole team of investigators and even a film crew. Their plan was to record as much as possible and make a documentary out of it. Now, some people take paranormal investigations seriously. Some don't. Uh, the beginning of their investigation demonstrates that uh, perfectly. Now, before the group entered the hospital through the front door this time, all the folks were got together to perform a protection ceremony a precaution that those in her group believed was important and necessary. And while she was doing that, the security guard was letting him in. Uh, all it cost him was a bottle of what they called the good stuff. The uh, security guard stood in the middle of the protective circle, scratching his rear. Without warning, he snorted and spat on the floor. And that was when they decided, enough of that, let's start the investigation. Now, inside the hospital, they split up into several smaller groups. Two investigators together in one of the groups, and they decided to begin their exploration in the basement where the morgue was located. And to reach the basement, they took an elevator. There were actually two elevators in the building, side by side. Only one worked, and the other one didn't even have power. In the morgue, it was uh, quite an interesting experience. Still equipment left behind that they could check out, but on that particular night, the real action didn't happen in the morgue. It happened back out in the hallway with the elevators. And while they were in the morgue, they, they heard the ding of an elevator and the sound of its doors opening. When they went to see what was going on and who was joining them, it was the non-operational elevator. and did they even have power that was working? Its doors had opened up. Intrigued, they approached, intending to enter the elevator to see what was going on, but as they got close to the doors, they closed again, and the elevator started to go up. Now, it had no pa power, no passenger, but it went up. The uh, One of the investigators come, wondered out loud, uh, where would they have ended up if it had got, gotten in it? At another point in their visit, when one of their groups was on the fourth floor, they heard really loud footsteps above them. At first they thought it might just be one of their party walking on the floor above them, but then they realized that normal everyday footsteps don't carry that clearly from the floor above. Now the area of the hospital where they expected that paranormal activity was the formal psych ward. So they went there next. And they weren't disappointed. 
though everybody appeared to have a different experience. In particular, one of the investigators had a profound experience because, as she said, I can see I can see spirits who haven't crossed over. I can't unfortunately say I see your grandma, and this is what your grandma says. I, I see the things that haven't crossed over, and a lot of them aren't very pretty. A lot of them are angry, or they're trying to be frightening. Not everybody in the group claimed psychic abilities of any kind, but even so, they all had a, a chilling experience in that part of the hospital. And I see my uh, my little peanut gallery had to announce that the uh, the garbage man had arrived to steal their garbage. <clears throat> they live for Wednesdays. All right. Now, there was no question in the mind of um, these two investigators that something was going on at the hospital. <clears throat> in the old psych ward, there were office areas separated from the main ward by plexiglass windows. And as they wandered around, somebody in the group noticed something he thought was new and asked, were those handprints there before? Well, when... They all looked. Everyone could clearly see handprints streaking down the window. Looked like somebody had banged open palms against the glass and pulled them down the length of the pane. Unfortunately, nobody could remember if the handprints had been there when they first arrived on the floor. But it was a disconcerting experience that put uh, several members of the group on the uh, edge, so to speak. And it was around this time in the visit that some of the investigators could smell unexplained pipe or cigar smoke. And according to one of the investigators, well, once again, I had to go restore order with the peanut gallery. Well, about this time, as I said, everybody smelled cigar smoke. It's also on that floor that uh, one of the investigators saw the first visible manifestation she encountered on the investigation. 15-year-old girl with an incredible amount of emotional pain. And although she was dressed in a hospital gown, uh, the impression the investigator had was that she was from the late 70s. Caucasian girl with long brown hair occasionally obscured her face as she moved and hung her head. Her wrists were wrapped because she had tried unsuccessfully to commit suicide and she was twitchy and scratching herself like a meth addict. But... She wasn't a meth addict. Uh, and the girl kept saying, when are mom and dad going to come pick me up? All she wanted was for her parents to come and get her to take her away from this terrible place. First she seemed to think the little group of investigators had come to help her, and she hung around for a bit, shaking and scratching and asking when her parents were coming. Eventually, when she realized that only one member of the group could see her and nobody there had the power to help her, she faded away. Now, the investigator couldn't say if the girl had died at the hospital or if she'd died elsewhere, but felt her place was at the uh, Charles Campbell. Either way, it seemed pretty clear she didn't want to be there any longer, and, but she couldn't move on. Now, many of these investigators, even those who couldn't see the girl, were uncomfortable on that floor and wanted to leave it. In fact, most of them did go elsewhere, leaving only three people in the psych ward. The investigators had split up into three groups. The first remained on the psych ward, and two others went someplace else. Um, one of the investigators was with the second group, and the other one was with his, uh, a friend of his in the third group. And that's when their walkie-talkie started to act up. Suddenly, everybody in the, the various groups heard an unearthly scream of pain or horror coming through the walkie-talkies. Before they could process their ramifications or figure out its source, um, one of the members of the group, uh, his voice came over the line. It said, Leslie, are you there? Are you okay? Where are you? Now, Leslie was naming his girlfriend at the time. As it might not seem unreasonable. He wanted to make sure she was all right. Except there were three problems with that first. Leslie wasn't even in the country. She was on a humanitarian mission and as a nurse in Africa. And second, some people heard his voice come over the walkie-talkies and 
Others didn't hear anything. And third, he didn't have a walkie-talkie. So how did his voice get on the, the net? According to one of the investigators, the spirits will mimic you. And if whoever was a spirit mimicking his voice, that begs the question, what was the purpose? And how did it know what name to use? How did it know his girlfriend's name? Everybody is pretty shaken up by that. But as one of the investigators repeatedly said during the interview, there's no point in doing investigations if you're not willing to face that fear and keep looking. It makes no sense to go seeking the paranormal activity and run away screaming at the first sign of it when you encounter it. So the intrepid group moved ahead. On the pediatric floor of the hospital, one of the groups tried an experiment. Cut open a large garbage bag so that it was a big square black plastic. Laying it out on the ground, they covered it in baby powder and put a small ball like a child might play with in the middle of that powder-covered plastic sheet. Idea was, if anything, disturb the ball, tracks or marks would be left in the powder. And then they set up an infrared camera to record the ball, got on the elevator and left. Figuring that whatever spirits were on that floor uh, would show signs that they were there. Later when they played back the recording, they were absolutely shocked. According to one of the investigators, you heard the elevator door close, and as soon as those, the doors were closed, that floor came alive. You could hear somebody pushing a metal cart. You could hear the beep, beep, beep of a heart machine. You could hear all that stuff, just like the floor was in full operation again. The only movement captured on video was a movement, a moment that uh, something unseen struck the camera and moved it slightly off to the left. Imagine how disoriented it must have been to the watching one, uh, watching one reality and hearing another. Unfortunately, the video was accidentally recorded over, so it couldn't be watched later. But the others uh, saw it before it was lost, and they were pretty much able to repeat what they saw. The team was distressed to discover that their incredible video had been lost, though, sacrificed to the recording of a television sitcom. Those were important, too, you know. Well, when one of the investigators' group investigated the basement, they discovered an auditorium they assumed had been used for physical therapy and patient recreation. They had basketball hoops, two projection booths, and various other bits of equipment. When the investigator said, when I was down there, there were a whole bunch of aboriginal spirits, and they're feeling everything between angry, sad, despair, every emotion possible except anything positive. One spirit in particular drew her attention, an aboriginal elder. When she saw him, uh, he was sitting on a bench against the wall, holding his head in his hands. She approached and spoke to him, and he looked up at her and said, we didn't ask to be here. We didn't want to be here anymore. Unfortunately, they didn't have a choice in the matter. This investigator got the impression that there were a lot of spirits, indigenous and otherwise, on the grounds of the Charles Council Hospital. She said, I found going through all the floors, there were spirits there, and they were reluctant, and a lot of them didn't want to come out. She believes they're trapped there in the hospital. They, uh, the two main investigators uh, planned to sometime go back and release them all. They're waiting, and they're waiting for somebody to come get them. And as the night wore on, the uh, investigative team grew mentally and physically exhausted. But two decided to visit the first floor. Uh, one of the investigators, who um, went with her friend to that first floor, sensed bad emanations coming from one of the officers down the hallway near the main entrance, and the two of them went in to check it out. They said they weren't scared. They can feel the deep negative. Didn't want to say evil because we don't believe in demons. We don't believe in devils. It's all human. It's all negative humans that cause a lot of this stuff. So what she thought uh, she could say about it was uh, the person, the lady that occupied that office when they were alive or decided to occupy it after they were dead was a really nasty, nasty person. When the investigators felt sick to her stomach in that room and decided not to linger. Before leaving the hospital, two of them had a celebratory shot of Crown Royal with the security guard. 
and uh, and while one of the investigators took um, one of the members of the party home, um, a friend drove um, the other investigator back to his place. When they got there, she he offered her a drink, which she accepted. After drinking it, she went to the bathroom, and that's the last thing she remembers from that night. When the other investigator arrived back some time later, the friend said, I'm worried about uh, the other investigator. She's been in the bathroom a long time. Well, they opened the door and found her asleep on the floor, scratching at her arms like the girl she'd seen in the psych ward at the hospital. They couldn't get her awake and couldn't do anything but wrap a blanket around her and wait until she woke up of her own accord. That was something that never happened before. In fact, nobody who was involved in the investigation was unaffected. Next day, they all were fatigued to a degree that couldn't be explained by mere sleep deprivation. And many had disturbing nightmares for weeks after that. Going to one of the investigators, I'm not super affected by investigations or stuff like that, but every single person who was there felt physically and emotionally drained. Now, the investigator who spent the night sleeping on the bathroom floor thinks the combination of drinking alcohol and not protecting herself spiritually before or immediately after leaving the building is what caused the problem. When you drink alcohol or do drugs of any kind, you open yourself up to things. And, uh, you know, the question was, had the investigator who was so affected been a way out for the girl from the psychiatric ward? You know, according to her friend, half the time, when you do one of these investigations, it's up with more questions than answers. Now, if there are spirits captured or trapped at the capsule, news isn't all grim, though. Current owner and developer Gene Dubb recently spoke at a full-day symposium about the hospital, indicating that once the site's completely safe from asbestos, and they're undertaking a huge effort to remove it all, He'll welcome Aboriginal elders to perform a healing ceremony at the property. They step toward that reconciliation with Canada's indigenous people and could help begin the process of healing for those who are still with us as well as for the spirits who don't want to be there anymore. Now, the in Edmonton, there's another hospital, the Edmonton General Hospital. Um... It opened up in 1895 and still functions as a continuing care center. According to the Paranormal Scene Investigation Canada website, there are three main hauntings associated with this particular hospital. First occurs on the eighth floor in the area of the hospital that was once pediatrics, Ward 8B, as in Bravo. There, people have claimed to hear the sounds of crying children, even though there are no children anywhere in the ward. Second haunting also occurs, at least in part, on the eighth floor. It's said that the full-body apparition of a woman has been seen wandering over, over the sixth and the eighth floors. Legend says this is the ghost of a mother who's now spending eternity searching for her lost child. Third and final ghost is reported to be that of an electrician who was killed in an accident working in the hospital basement. His ghost can be spotted from time to time lingering in the area where he died. Now, also in Edmonton is Pembina Hall, a residential building for students on the University of Alberta campus. For some period of time, it did function as a hospital, and as a result, it's reported to be haunted. Built in 1914, it served as a residence for students, but also contained classrooms and offices and the anatomy department. And... Um, that department earned the building the nickname the morgue and it's pretty clear that the Pembina's Hall's nickname uh, was a very apt nickname at the end of the first world war an outbreak of Spanish influenza slipped across the planet killed more people than the war did estimated from 1918 to 1919 over 20 million people died from this pandemic and some estimates range as high as 50 million or more making it the worst pandemic in human history. Canada wasn't immune. If you went and visited an old graveyard, you'll find a disproportionately high number of tombstones 
listing 1918 or 1919 is the year of death. Now, throughout this global outbreak, people were getting sick and dying so quickly that the hospitals couldn't contain them all, and adaptable buildings were frequently commandeered for use as temporary hospitals. Pembina Hall was one of these uh, temporary hospitals. And during its time as a hospital, at least 72 people died uh, in that facility. And because Pembina was intended as a place to live rather than a place to die, it lacked the appropriate facilities to deal with the resulting corpses. So in an attempt to prevent the spread of disease through contact, the bodies were stored in the building's basement. Unfortunately, in the hot summertime, the basement was a sweltering place. As a result, the bodies decomposed at an accelerated rate. With the ventilation being what it was in the early 1900s, it's likely the odor of the rotting corpses would have been noticeable throughout the building. In fact, it's said that in Pembina Hall, even today, nearly 100 years later, on a hot summer day, you can still catch a whiff of uh, decomposition. Now, another slightly less visceral story about Pembina Hall's time as a hospital involves a young couple. According to the University of Alberta Student Union Spooky Places on Campus webpage, the couple met and fell in love while they were attending the university. Then came the war, which, of course, tore them apart. He joined the Army and went to fight for his country, and she stayed in Edmonton and volunteered as a nurse. She was working in Pembina Hall, and she found a familiar face under her care. Her main squeeze was back from the war, but fighting a much more insidious foe than the Germans. She stayed by his side, trying to help him defeat the Spanish influenza, but no avail. He died shortly after being reunited with her. Now, Spanish influenza was a especially horrific way to die. Long, lingering death, during which people often cough so hard their eyes are bleed, and it slowly suffocates, sometimes actually turning blue from lack of oxygen. And devastated by the incredibly traumatic loss of her love, the nurse ran to the nearby river valley and threw herself into the river. Now, according to the story, her body was never recovered, but some people say even now a ghostly couple, one wearing a nurse's uniform and him in army fatigues, can occasionally be spotted wandering hand in hand through the halls of Pembina Hall. Believe it or not. Then in Lethbridge, we have Gaunt Hospital. The Gaunt Museum and Archives, described as a vibrant gathering place designed to meet the historical, culture, and educational needs of the community, is in a building that was built in 1910 as part of the Gaunt Hospital. Belinda Croson, an employee of the museum, has collected and written about eerie happenings at the museum over the years and shared some of those stories. Now, many of the stories told about the building's historic use as a hospital involve a gentleman who died after falling down an elevator shaft on his way to surgery in 1933. This man, who the staff has taken to calling George, is said to still linger in the building and makes his presence known by operating the elevator. Now, this haunted elevator is at least in replaced, but the old elevator would run between floors all on its own, sometimes even trap people alone inside for hours at a time. In addition to haunting the elevator, George said to have made his presence felt in the basement. Incidents in the building have for so long been blamed on his ghost that staff's grown accustomed to shrugging off any strange happenings, saying it's just George. One story shared from the days when the building was still a hospital was of a woman who came to in to have a baby. At one point, she was returning from the main floor lobby to her room on the top floor. Got on the elevator, pushed a button for the upper floor, but the elevator took her to the basement instead. When it arrived in the basement, a man was standing on the other side of the doors looking in at her. She didn't think much about it until she realized he was transparent. She could see right through him. The woman frantically pushed buttons to close the door and go back to the main lobby, and when she got came out of the elevator, she heard to the nurse's station reported what she had seen. She said, oh, that's just George. He brings people downstairs when he's lonely. There's also odd smells that emanate from nowhere and eerie sounds that have been heard in otherwise empty corridors and rooms. Moving shadows and strange blue lights have also been reported by people who have been in the museum. One evening after a researcher finished some work in the museum, he left knowing he was the last person to exit the building. Once outside, he felt compelled to look back up at the window of the room he had just left, and looked, and he looked up, and in the window, smiling down and waving at him, was a little boy and a little girl. 
passerbyers on the street have also reported seeing a pair of children waving out of the window long after the museum is closed and the building is locked up for the night. These children, who've been nicknamed Sarah and Alexander, are said to be associated with the old children's ward, which was originally called the Sunbeam Ward of Galt Hospital. Sarah appears to be somewhere between the ages of 5 and 7, and Alexander between 10 and 12, and they're always seen together. It's also been reported that one of the previous custodians from the museum used to get frustrated when the lights in the room she was cleaning was randomly shut off on their own. Other times, after she'd left the room and turned off the light, it snapped back on without anybody operating them. Now, believing the cause of these uh, lights to be the ghost of the playful children, she'd heave out alongside and instruct the children to turn out the lights and go to bed. Sometimes, she said, it worked. The lights would go off as she commanded. And other staff have claimed to hear singing and animated discussions coming from empty rooms, but they can't be certain whether singing is coming from the spirits of the children or a side effect of an odd sound transfer occurring during through the building's old bricks. And there's more than one report of staff members being disturbed from their work in an office by the sound of shuffling feet outside the door. When they get up to investigate the noise, of course, there's nobody in the hallway. At one time in the building's history, there was a tunnel attached to the morgue area of the building. Underground hallway that's been blocked off with the connecting building was torn down. That hallway now leads nowhere, but it's apparently a hot spot for paranormal activity, including reports of people being pushed, shoved, or touched when they're in it. One Halloween tour of the building, a high school student was accidentally left behind in this underground area. When the teacher came back to get her, the student claimed that some unseen presence had been holding her in the tunnel. Another story was, that was shared came from uh, someone who was been a teenager in the 60s. According to his story, Five young boys were, who snuck in the empty building after it was no longer in use uh, as a hospital had an interesting tale to tell. While moving around the basement, they were startled by the sound of footsteps heading in their direction. Frightened they might be caught by a security guard, they ran. Once they were back outside, they looked up and saw a man standing in the second floor window, dressed in a suit, wore a hat, and had a big red flower in his lapel. They were confused about how the man in the window could have moved from the basement to the second floor so quickly, and they became convinced what they'd seen and heard was one of the building's ghosts. And one final tale from the building involved a telephone repairman who did some work there in 1979. For the first five years he worked there, he never experienced anything strange or unusual. But later on in his career, he found himself alone in a dimly lit room in the back corridor of the building, holding, standing on a ladder. His partner, a man who went by the name Grandpa, was upstairs, and he was supposed to feed the wire down that they were installing. While he waited for Grandpa to push the wire down the pipe, he felt a tingling sensation on the back of his neck and a sudden draft of cold air that made his toes go numb. Getting back down off the ladder, flashlight in hand, he looked around and wondered if the draft came from Grandpa opening a nearby door. But there was nobody else around inside or outside that room. He climbed back up the ladder where he felt a second draft of cold air blow into the room. Assuming his colleague was playing a trick on him from the corridor, he said, Quit your fooling around, Grandpa. And in Grandpa's voice, muffled from his location upstairs, came down the pipe, I'm not fooling around, just put the wire on the fish stick. Well, the man immediately abandoned the room. His face was white with terror while he explained what happened about the secretary and Grandpa. Well, Grandpa, of course, had a good laugh of what he said was the man's overactive imagination, but uh, that worker refused to ever return to the basement of the old Gaunt Hospital by himself. Well, let's go to the Alberta Hospital for the Insane in Ponoki. Now, known under many different names, including the Alberta Mental Hospital, Ponoka Mental Hospital and Alberta Hospital Building Number 1, the hospital in Pinoca, Alberta, was founded in 1911 and became the province's primary health care facility in Alberta's first mental hospital. The building still stands, transformed into the Centennial Center for Mental Health and Brain Injury, and is now a nationally renowned psychiatric and brain care facility. But for at least a few former employees of the, this facility, it will forever be the cause of endless nightmares. Now, the first story 
that I'm going to cover was uh, talked about on Coast to Coast with George Nori in March of 2015. The caller was a former staff member who um, was given the uh, name Pat. Didn't really want to reveal uh, even her sex or his sex. Pat worked in a psychiatric hospital for several decades and had a story that hadn't previously uh, shared, mainly because it was so horrifying he didn't want to think about it. Now, the story concerned a woman called Martha Sutherland, who died sometime in the late 1980s or early 1990s, been admitted to the hospital as an adolescent about 1950. Spent most of her formative years and all her adult life at the hospital. Not an uncommon occurrence, according to Pat. Martha was in her mid-50s, 1983, when the events in question happened. The conditions at Longcrest 1, the unit where Pat worked, uh, were described in some detail. He talked about the old idea of the inmates running the asylum with reference to the 1920 cult film The Cabin of Dr. Caligari. It was like that. The expression was literally true. The unit was out of control. It was horrible. At the time, Pat was working permanent night flow and said there were normally two or three staff members on duty for that shift. But because the unit was so difficult to control, it wasn't uncommon for to have six staff members there. Unusual at a time when it was almost unheard of for even four staff members to be on duty simultaneously in the same unit. There was a uh, an all-staff meeting that included doctors and nurses and support workers and held to discuss and share issues and decide on solutions. And they decided and discussed the potential need for danger pay. Well, was the possibility of bringing in tasers for the safety of the staff. And amid all the discussions of violence and patient unruliness that had been causing these concerns, the topic of Martha Sutherland came up. Now, somebody immediately mentioned the possibility that Martha might be possessed, and several of the staff members who regularly dealt with her kicking and punching and screaming and biting immediately agreed. She was taken very seriously, and several rounds of discussion began. According to one of the workers who had access to the documents in a single month at the hospital, Martha had caused more staff injuries than there were in all the other hospital incidents combined. There was talk about actually bringing in an exorcist in order to deal with her. Now, Martha's room was adjacent to the television room, where when they weren't on active duty or doing rounds, staff would relax and watch TV or movies, and the room had a direct connection by ventilator shaft to Martha's room. And sometimes when they were sitting in that room, they'd hear voices that weren't coming from the TV. You could hear voices as if she was talking to a second person. When you went and checked in on her, right next door, just a few steps away, she was lying there fast asleep and all by herself. And Pat also claimed that Martha's room was sometimes like being in an icebox. She complained about the cold, and the staff would move her to another warmer room, and in minutes of moving her, that room uh, she'd been in would return to normal temperature, and the room where she'd been moved to would return ice cold. Which was odd, but the worst thing happened one night in the seclusion room. Sometimes when patients lost control, they'd put them in a private seclusion room so they couldn't hurt the staff or other patients. And a seclusion room was a 10 by 12 foot room with a door at the front and one at the back. The windowsill was sloped at a 45 degree to prevent anybody from being able to perch on it. There was a large curtain on the inside of the room and to prevent too much stimulation from light and noise outside the room. And inside the room was a mattress and there was a blanket known as a strong sheet made from multiple layers of canvas and designed to be difficult to tear. One night there were three of them working on the night shift. Martha was yelling and hitting and punching and kicking at them after coming out of her room screaming bloody murder. They weren't sure if it was a dream or a hallucination, but she wouldn't be calmed down. They had to tranquilize her and put her in a seclusion room. Later on in the wee hours of the morning, Martha was doing rounds, excuse me, Pat was doing rounds to check on all the patients. And something shocking, shocking awaited him in Martha's room. Um... Walked in, pulled back the curtain, turned on the night lights. She wasn't lying on the mattress, and she wasn't standing in the corner. 
which patients sometimes did. But looking to the right, he saw something he'll never be able to get out of his mind. Martha was literally standing at about his shoulder height on the side of the wall, facing out into the room. Looked just like somebody who was standing on the floor looking straight ahead, but because she was horizontal, not vertical, she was facing down and staring straight at the floor. Her nightgown was done up around her, and parts of it were hanging down as if gravity was still work property on it, even though gravity didn't seem to be working on her body in any way. Her hair was shorter, a closely cut perm style, but it wasn't long enough to be hanging down. But there she stood, her feet on the wall, still unmoving. Well, Martha didn't acknowledge Pat in any way, and he couldn't tell if she was awake or asleep. And he didn't stick around long to find out either. Took one look at her, realized what he was seeing, went back out, and returned to the TV room. Never told any of his colleagues what he'd seen. When he went uh, back to the TV room, the supervisor asked uh, how everything was, and he said, yep, just fine. Spent the rest of his time trying desperately to block that image out of his mind. Well, until the night he called Coast to Coast AM to share the story, he had never breathed a word of the tale to anybody. A week after that show, prior to a scheduled call to share the story with uh, a writer in more detail, Pat, well, a former colleague from the hospital, somebody who knew Martha. And Pat told his former co-worker the story and watched as a really strange look came over his friend's face. When he finished, the other man shared something he, too, had never breathed the word about to anybody, mostly because he believed what he had seen was an optical illusion. He said the colleague had been working the day shift and had checked in on Martha's room. She stared straight ahead, didn't acknowledge him at all, but so he would have sworn her feet were about two inches above the floor. Now, at that time, he shook his head and dismissed it as a work of an overtired mind or maybe a trick of the light. When he heard Pat's story, he wondered if maybe he hadn't been mistaken at all. Well, certainly things like that, while extremely bizarre, because of some of the, the forces available in the human mind, are not impossible. On that note, we've come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about haunted hospitals and sanatoriums and other institutions. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.